Hi, welcome to the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I have a book that's actually fairly difficult to read, but it's just so important that I want to share it with you. So please put up with me. I'm going to probably be stumbling my way through part of this here. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And the subheading is the Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony. The author is Richard Bauckham. And uh, he's a professor emeritus of New Testament studies in Scotland and uh, a fellow of both the British Academy and the Royal Society of Edinburgh. And uh, so the, the thing about this book that makes it so powerful is expressed well by N.T. Wright on the back cover. The question of whether the Gospels are based on eyewitness accounts has long been controversial. Richard Bauckham draws on his unparalleled knowledge of the world of the first Christians to argue not only that the Gospels do indeed contain eyewitness testimony, but that their first readers would certainly have recognized them as such. And he calls it a remarkable piece of detective work. And uh, so it is. It's, um, it's a terrific read, but it, it's difficult. I mean, there's a lot of material in here. So what I usually do is take a, a particular chapter of a book and share it with you. But I'm going to do a little hopping and skipping around here. I'm going to start on uh, page 68, where he's talking about Palestinian Jewish names. He says, uh, somebody created a, a huge list. So he says, we know the names of about 3,000 Palestinian Jews who lived during the first five centuries. So he says, that's the background of it. <clears throat> he says, uh, he gives you the statistics here. Like 15% of the men had the two most popular male names, Simon and Joseph. 41% uh, of the men bore one of the nine most popular male names. So he's got all these statistics. I don't want to bore you with that. But what I think is fascinating is he lines up this list with what are the most popular names with New Testament names. And here's the result. The percentages for men in the New Testament correlate remarkably closely with those for the population in general. So he says the names of Palestinian Jews that are found in the Gospels and Acts, he says they coincide really closely with the names of the general population of Jewish Palestine in this time period. So think about that for just a minute. If you're writing in 200 or 300 AD, something like that, you wouldn't know necessarily what the most popular names were during the time of Jesus. Just like right now, I mean, my name is Gary, and, and nobody names their kids Gary anymore. So just in my lifetime, we're seeing changes in popularities of name. Well, same thing was true for the Jews. But he says, you know, once you get to the diaspora where the Jews were scattered all across the nations after the Romans uh, took over and smashed them, the names changed. The names changed big time. So he says, as a result, it says it's very unlikely that the names in the Gospels are later accretions to the traditions. In other words, did they get changed and brought up to date by Jews and uh, Christians later? No. Nobody would have known in three or 400 A.D. what those early names were. And so he tells you about the popularity of the names and things like that, and I think I'll skip over that. But let me go to uh, a part. What I like about his chapters, by the way, he always has a summary conclusion as he moves on. So he says, the relative frequency of those personal names in the Gospels corresponds well to the relative frequency in the database of 3,000 individuals in the Palestinian Jewish sources of the period. He said, but if you go to the diaspora, that pattern is very, very different. 
And he says, that would be difficult to explain if you think it's just an invention later on. And he says, all the evidence indicates a general authenticity of the personal names in the Gospels. So I thought that was pretty powerful. All right, let me skip ahead here to 183. So here's a chapter that talks about why are there certain anonymous persons mentioned in Mark's passion narrative? Okay, so I let's take a look at that. It says, it's difficult to tell from his account of the arrest of Jesus in Gethsemane whether those two anonymous persons are mentioned, whether they're disciples of Jesus or not. One is the man who did the cutting off of the ear of the high priest, and there's that young man who fled naked. They're not mentioned by name, so we don't know. Now, Pilate is mentioned by Mark, and so Mark obviously expects his readers to know who Pilate is. But, you know, in another place, he doesn't give the name of the high priest, Caiaphas. He just calls him in Mark 14, just the high priest. Why is that being anonymous? And he says it seems to have been primarily this high priestly family that followed up its action against Jesus by persecuting the followers of Jesus, you know, the Jew, the uh, Jerusalem Christian community. And so probably because of the hostility, it'd be diplomatic for the early Christians in their writing not to refer explicitly to the name of Caiaphas when they're talking about the death of Jesus. So they're trying to play it safe there a little bit. He says there's an atmosphere of danger and protective secrecy that Mark's passion story seems to conjure up. So then he mentions the story of the cult, the story of the uh, cult that Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem. That's Mark 11. And then the preparation of the Passover meal in 14. And they're kind of odd stories and anonymous as well. And Bauckham says, you know, the owner of the cult who had arranged ahead of time for Jesus to write it, could have gotten himself in trouble because he would be seen as complicit in a politically subversive act. So his name isn't mentioned. So um, they're, they're keeping secrets in here. Isn't that interesting? Because Mark's gospel is very early. And if we assume, let's say it's in the 40s or the 50s, a lot of these people are still alive, still active in the community, and they may have gotten in trouble. So we have a lot of anonymity. Here's another piece like that. If you look at the woman who anoints Jesus in Mark 14, she's unspecified. And uh, so the solution says maybe, again, what he calls protective anonymity. That woman would have been in danger if she had been revealed as being part of that subversive claim about Jesus to be a Messiah. So she isn't mentioned either. Okay, so uh, let me move on here because there's so many good things. Um, all right, I'm going to skip some of this. So he says, we're now in a position to understand why several of those people are not named in Mark's passion, but they are in John. Now think about that for just a minute. Why is it in John? It's written much, much later, and so it may not be a problem. I mean, John is writing after Peter's death, so Peter doesn't need the anonymity of the guy doing the cutting, uh, the high priest here, so it's okay. You can mention Peter's name at that point. And John even names Malchus, the one that got the ear cut, to highlight the danger, but he didn't need to be anonymous anymore. And in John, the woman who anointed Jesus is now mentioned as Mary, the sister of 
Martha and Lazarus. So the anonymity disappears in John, but it was there in Mark. And uh, what about the story of Lazarus? People say, well, it's not in the synoptic, so maybe it never happened. But it says that we may go back to that protective anonymity there, because if the word Lazarus shows up in Mark's gospel, it's early enough, Lazarus may have still been alive, and then people are out looking for him. So I think that's interesting uh, material there. Okay, so that's that chapter. Let me go ahead, uh, let me mention Papias here for just a minute. Papias was an early church bishop in the early 100s, and uh, he talked about how the Gospels originated, spe uh, specifically referring to the Gospel of Mark and the one of Matthew. So here's uh, Papias talking about Mark. Mark, in his capacity as Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately as many things as he recalled from memory, though not in an ordered form, of the things either said or done by the Lord. Okay, for he, Mark, neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him, etc., etc. Okay, what does he say about Matthew? He says, Matthew put the word in an ordered arrangement in the Hebrew language, but each person interpreted them as best, he's, as best he could. So do you hear that part about Mark? They wrote down what Peter said, but it wasn't very ordered. Now, when you come to Luke, Luke says he wants to put things in an orderly manner. So you can tell that he's referencing probably Mark being a little bit out of order there. So that's a claim, several claims, but one of the claims is that Papias is saying Peter's teaching lies behind Mark, which ties it into eyewitnesses. This is not somebody making this stuff up far later. Okay, so let me skip ahead. That's uh, uh, talking about who wrote what. Let's go to 280, page 280. This is uh, the issue of memorization. Now, you think about it, the disciples hung around Jesus, and they had to remember what Jesus said, but it, Bachman is saying memorization was universal in education in the ancient world. And it says learning basically meant memorizing. Sometimes it was complete books or selections from them. And it says in basic Hellenistic education, they, they memorized stories about famous men and the sayings of great teachers. They memorized all this. And they were taught ways of varying this to abbreviate in some cases or expand, things like that. It says it was okay. You didn't have to have word for word all the way through. So sometimes when you look at Matthew or Mark or Luke and it's reporting on the same story and it sounds a little bit different, you know, is that the case where somebody got it wrong? No. As long as you get you got the basic gist of it. It says uh, in a predominantly oral society, people remembered... They had to. That was their job. But the teachers themselves would formulate their teachings to make it easily memorable. And so he mentions Jesus. He said, Jesus has a lot of things about his teaching that would help people remember. He had aphorisms that were terse, really incisive. He had parables with a simple plot outline. It says, if you can read the Aramaic, you look at the Aramaic that uh, Jesus used, and it said, those are rich in alliteration and assonance and rhythm and rhyme and wordplay. So that would have been easy for the people to remember as well. Okay, let me go to toward the end here. I wanted to give you kind of a summary of some of the things we, I've been talking about. 
472. He says, The historical task of this book is now complete. We have argued that the Gospels put us in close touch with the eyewitnesses of the history of Jesus. So that's the whole point of this book, that you can pull these Gospels right back to the time of Jesus. He says the Gospel writers presented their Gospels based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. There's that word, eyewitnesses, again. He said uh, they were giving it a permanent vehicle to carry to the people, right, from the eyewitnesses. He says an eyewitness authored his own gospel, and this gospel, John's, is the one that incorporates the most extensive reflection on the significance of the eyewitness testimony. So he says the gospels are not some kind of obstacle to knowledge of the real Jesus, but he says that's the way that Jesus and his history was reflected. So powerful material there. The very end, he said the gospels share broadly in the attitude to eyewitness testimony that was common during that time period in the Greco-Roman world. These historians, he said, valued first-hand experience of the events. That was the best thing for them. Uh, best thing is to be a, a, a participant, for a historian to be a participant. That's directly involved. And, of course, that wouldn't happen all the time. So if a historian wasn't present, then that historian would seek informants who could speak from first-hand knowledge. They, they were there, and the historian could interview them. They said that was the best history that they imagined, says historians like Thucydides and Polybius did things like that. So, powerful book, again, called uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Again, not the easiest book to read. It's a, it's a handful. It's uh, 500 pages when you look at the index, but it's something that at least uh, read about the book, even if you don't get the book itself, because it's got some really good points that will tie the Gospels to eyewitness reports rather than late uh, accumulations by people that weren't involved and just made best guesses possible. So thanks again for uh, listening, and uh, talk to you next time.